now that I'm sufficiently hungry from watching all those nice fruits in front of us. Um, if you have your Bibles, get it out with me. Uh, we're going to turn to Galatians chapter 5. And the words that were in that brief video kind of were the, the text before us. And if you have your core guide, it's a publication we have every week to kind of help us all keep connected with uh, the message on an ongoing basis throughout the week, and there's devotionals on the inside. Um, on the back of the core guide for the last couple weeks, we've had the, the new series uh, logo on it, Fruitology, kind of the study of the fruit of the Spirit, and um, kind of has the calendar for the remaining part of the summer. And the, the words that are on the back there are the text that we're going to be studying. Um, and it's written in the message translation. Eugene Peterson has uh, translated it. It's, it's more of a, it's kind of an updated modern language kind of translation, uh, not necessarily word for word, but he kind of phrases things in ways that, that we might connect with a little bit differently. And I don't do my studying out of the message, but I like to read it, to, to, to just listen to the Scripture and, and see it um, in a different way. So I, I want to read you what's, what's on the back of the core guide and just kind of walk through you, and then, and then we'll look more specifically at Galatians 5, 22 and, and 23, 23 throughout the morning. But this is, uh, this is how Eugene translates it. He says, but what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, we'd call that love. We'll talk about that a little bit today. Exuberance about life, joy, serenity. That's just a nice word, isn't it? Serenity, peace. We develop a willingness to stick with things patience, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people, which is kindness and goodness. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, which is faithfulness, not needing to force our way in life. We're able to marshal and direct our energies wisely, gentleness and self-control. It's Galatians 5, 22 and 23 from the message. It's the word of the Lord, you say. Thanks be to God. You know, I've been thinking about this particular series for a, a little while now, and there are about, oh, six or eight different ways that I'd love to um, begin this particular message or this series, and... I really had a hard time narrowing it down, and, and even as late as like one o'clock this morning today, I was kind of going back and forth with myself. And uh, so here's, here's what I was thinking. When I know we're towards the end of July now, but it's July, and, and I didn't get to preach on the 4th of July Sunday. I'm appreciative of Pastor Trent and Grant Zweigel and Tom Cook, who filled in for the last few Sundays. Um, but I, I was thinking and remembering that when I was a kid, the 4th of July was like my favorite, very favorite holiday. And, and I was trying to think about, now why, 
why was the 4th of July my favorite? Well, I'm, I'm kind of a patriotic person. I love the red, white, and blue. Um, you know, I, as a kid, I just, I just loved something about the parade that was in town. I loved going to the fireworks at night. And, you know, we lived in the upper peninsula of Michigan, and so it wasn't so brutally hot that, uh, you know, we were able to enjoy it, and the cool breeze would come in off Lake Superior, and it was just awesome. We could watch the fireworks just burst above us, and, and that was kind of magical for a kid, and then I was thinking, well, 4th of July means grilled meat. I like that. Watermelon, corn on the cobs, just right around the corner, you know, and then I was thinking, well... Maybe it's because it just feels like the 4th of July is the official launch of summer, right? Yeah, I know school gets out a little bit earlier, but it never really seems to me like the summer really gets into the swing of things until you get to the 4th of July. So maybe that has something to do with it. You know, but I also, I was thinking, I really like the fact that we get to celebrate the freedoms that we enjoy in our country. And I think even as a youngster, I think I, I resonated with that. I think I, I understood it. And, and so it was an exciting holiday to celebrate our nation's birthday. And, but then I, yeah, I thought I, I really got down to it. Um, I, I like the freedom of summer vacation. You know, being able to go to the beach, explore the woods, no schedule, no teachers. No, I love my teachers, but you educators, I love you dearly. But, you know, summer, you know, long school year, summer rolls around, and there's just something about the freedom of summer. Then I thought, you know, if I'm really honest with myself, I think I like the 4th of July because, well, it just signaled that it was my birthday month. <laughs> you know, i got to be honest when I need to. And uh, so the book of Galatians... We're, in a, we're really going to be focused in on two verses over seven or eight weeks, and, um, and then we'll use other scripture to help illustrate our, our scripture. Uh, but the book of Galatians, it's really, at its core, a book about freedom. And it's a book about freedom that we find in Christ Jesus. Now, Galatians 5.1 it's, it's a real simple verse. It says, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, we may read that. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We might read that and say, well, Paul, duh. <laughs> I mean, that sounds just like you don't need to repeat that. But he does need to repeat that because sometimes we fall back into a pattern where we feel like there's a long list of rules that we have to follow, and there's a weight that's associated with that. And so it, we find ourselves back in bondage and and slavery. And what Paul is saying is we don't have to carry around the burden of trying to earn grace. We don't have to live up to a certain standard before Jesus will love us and forgive us. He's already died on the cross for us, and that grace is there for us. We don't have to do anything to earn it. Jesus has taken on himself that burden. He, he fulfilled all of the requirements of the law for us. And so I was thinking about times when I have felt like there's this huge weight, this huge 
burden that I was carrying around that was kind of, you know, like law-driven. And I remembered working, uh, kind of I was assistant manager at a fast food chain that um, makes sandwiches, Subway sandwich. I said it. <clears throat> and I was oftentimes the one assigned the shift to close down the store. And so to close down the store, the owners had a checklist for the closer to go through and check off every little thing. Now this, you know, if you think about a store closing checklist, you know, you think you could fit it on one page, right? So it was two pages, it was two columns wide, and it was single-spaced. It was very, very specific and detailed. Now, I closed the store enough, I kind of had the checklist memorized, and I could shut the store down with my eyes closed. But there was this huge weight, this huge burden that I carried in closing the store down because I knew that the next morning that whoever was opening, and usually it was the boss, the owner, would come in and they'd get the list every day and walk through every item. And so, you know, mopping the floor is one of those things. And, and I knew that if one of those little mop worms came off the mop somewhere underneath a booth and was just there, they would find it. I knew that if the number of cups that was supposed to be in the stack wasn't exactly right, that they would count it. And I, I knew that they would go back and they would look at the, the sinks that we had to wash our dishes and they would check to make sure that there were no streaks left in the stainless steel sinks. And so I carried it around as a weight because I knew that somebody was going to check and if I had messed up in the least, I, I felt like I would, well, I would be called out on it. And so there's a little bit of burden that went along with closing the store down. And it wasn't a particularly difficult job, but the weight of all of the expectations of doing it just exactly right. Everything could be perfectly clean, and one thing could be out of place, and zap. And I really feel like, I really feel like, and I, I know that there are lots of Christians who walk through life right now and, and they really feel the same exact way about their faith. They feel like there's this long list of rules and expectations to follow as a follower of Jesus and, and, and that any time that they would mess up in the slightest that God is just out there waiting to zap them. You know, that's not really for freedom Christ has set you free, way to live, right? That feels like you're more under the bondage of, of being a rule follower. And um, these friends of mine who, who live like this, they, they live in fear. They live in doubt, and Paul would say that they live in bondage to the law, and, and this is exactly how the Galatians felt. So, Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians to, uh, to address this. He was reminding them that um, in Christ they are set free from this kind of thinking and, and living. Now, I, I know that sometimes Paul gets, he gets tagged a little bit off base for, for coming across as one who would say all this, and some people would say, well, Paul's just trying to give you a, a license to sin. 
But if you read Paul closely, he, he also taught the church in Galatia that um, as they grew closer and closer to God and were immersed in his love and they recognized the depth of, of his love and his sacrifice for them, that their reckless and their sinful living would just start to fade away because they were devoted to God and they were spending time pursuing that direction. And when you pursue God with reckless abandon, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you are immersed in his love, the Holy Spirit starts to do his work in your life. And so old ways of living start to fade away and, and fall off, and you begin to reap things that are different in your life. So the natural outcome for them would be that there might be things that God says, you know, you ought to do this. I have a better way for you to live than, than the way you're living. But you don't have to look at it as a, a checklist of rules to follow that you feel like you're under the weight of this burden. Christ has satisfied that for us, and there's grace for you. But as you move closer to me, you're going you're gonna to want to do those things because you love me, and you want to make me happy. And so we recognize that, wow, there are things I ought to do. I, I, I probably should do that that might make my life better and easier. And that's what Paul is saying when he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Now, we have to be honest with ourselves. Freedom, freedom sounds really nice, doesn't it? Uh, it's kind of attractive on the surface initially because we think that freedom will demand less of us. Um, you know, if you use summer vacation as a, a metaphor for this, um, if you have just gone through an entire school year where you have felt the weight and the pressure of, of you know, getting up at a certain time and being at the bus stop and make sure you're to your classes at the right moment and you have the right books and the right notebooks and you have your number two pencils and your calculator and, and you show up at, you know, for your classes and lunch and you make the bus to get home, and then you get home, and you got to open those books back up and do your homework, and then by the time you eat dinner and do more homework, then it's time to go to bed and do it all over the next day, right? There's a, there's a little bit of weight for students in getting and navigating through a school year, and so when summer vacation rolls around, you know, the freedom of no schedule, there's just something appealing about that. We like the idea of not having that responsibility, but with freedom, we kind of discover that there are actually fairly significant demands on us. Freedom isn't just swaying in the warm summer breeze in a hammock out in your yard, back and forth. Freedom demands something more. You know, when your schedule is all planned out for you, you really don't have to think about it much. The pressure is following the schedule, but you don't really have any mental energy in having to come up with the plan. If somebody's telling you what to do, you, know, you are free of the responsibility of coming up with that. But when your time is freed up, it requires effort on your part to fill it with worthwhile things. Freedom takes a lot of discipline on our part. 
Otherwise, we might slip into patterns of, of laziness or sloppy behavior. Bad habits start to creep in. And sometimes when people with newfound freedom figure out it's hard work for them, well, they wish they could go back to how it was when somebody was planning everything out. And this happens once in a while when, when kids grow up through elementary and junior high and they graduate high school and, you know, there's something freeing about going off to college or going to, into the next step of your life. And it's, it's exotic, it's exciting, and wow, this newfound freedom is kind of cool. Or when you get all the way through college and you graduate and you step out into the work world or whatever it is that you're going to do, there's this sense of, wow, there's a, a little bit more freedom. But oftentimes, after that initial uh, buzz kind of wears off and reality starts to set in, sometimes we get in our mind, you know, this is a lot of responsibility that I'm stepping into now. This freedom now requires a lot of me, and oh, I just long for those days when everything was just planned out, and all I had to do is just go through my schedule, and I didn't really have to think about it. Yes, there was pressure, and it was hard, but man, I wish I could go back to that. It happened to the Israelites. You know, they had been in slavery 400 years, Egypt, hard labor. And they groaned, and they complained, and they cried out to God, save us. These Egyptians are requiring so much of us, and they are brutalizing us, and this isn't how life is supposed to be, God. And God heard their cry, right? And he, he called Moses, and, and Moses went, you know, after some objections, but Moses went, and he went back and forth with Pharaoh persistently, and finally Pharaoh said, okay, just take your people and go. And so Moses leads the people out into the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And not, I mean, it's like right after they left and they get out in the wilderness and they are free people. God has just freed them. God has answered their prayer exactly how we don't want to be slaves anymore. And God says, okay, Moses is going to take you out. And they get out into the wilderness and they're on the way. And, and then they run into the, hey, our food isn't provided for us anymore. We're hungry. We're thirsty. You got to take care of us. This newfound freedom, with it came some responsibilities, and they started to step into this freedom and realized, oh, this may be more difficult than we thought. And they no sooner did they leave, but then they started complaining to Moses, what, did you just bring, out us, bring us out here to let us die in the wilderness? It would be better if we were back in Egypt. How quickly they forgot that they had been groaning for 400 years under the bondage of this slavery. And, and no sooner are they free than they, than they think, oh, maybe it wasn't so bad after all. Maybe we would rather step back into that. This freedom stuff is it's really hard. Freedom can be challenging. It can be hard work. Sometimes, um, sometimes freedom can start to erode away at a sense of community. And we think it's the opposite. We think as a free people that you, our unity, our bonding, our, our communities would grow stronger. Sometimes, though, freedom starts to erode away at our sense of community because people start to take their freedom a little too far. 
Because freedom can lead to an arrogance, can lead to an attitude called selfishness. Um, see, what happens is I think we take out the word freedom and we slide in a word more like license. Hey, I live in a free country. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, and nobody can say anything about it. I have my rights. I got my privileges. And I have the license to do this. And you know what? You're, you're right. You do have some freedoms. You do have some rights. That doesn't mean that they're all healthy and good and God-honoring. And sometimes when freedom is taken to its extreme and people really press this selfishness, then it starts to erode away at community because what happens is everybody is in it for themselves. Self-indulgence will never, ever, ever lead to real freedom because self-indulgence says that I don't care about anybody else. I'm going to please myself. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. I'm just going to do this because, you know, it's a free country and I have my rights. And if you take this too far, the next logical step is it just freedom degenerates into moral relativism. I think we're seeing a little bit of that in our country if you look around and you pay attention. People taking freedom just a little bit too far. It's no longer about the good of the whole. It's about the good of the self. And that starts to pull us apart. And then we start to see a lot of division, not just in politics, but in communities and in relationships and friendships and so forth. Because if we're all in it for ourselves, then it's really hard to build that sense. And so freedom can go a little bit too far because it's hard work. The Bible teaches something totally different about freedom. Uh, in our passage, um, Paul talks about a few things, and he says, against these things there are no laws. And he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And he says, he goes through this list, love, joy, peace, patience. We'll get back to that in, in a second. But he says, with those things, there's no law. There's no restrictions on the amount of love that you can show. And we'll define what that love looks like here in a second. But if, if you take uh, and you just keep adding more and injecting more of this specific kind of love into your relationships, there's no law. There's no restriction against that. You're totally free to do that. I, I really like the fruit metaphor. Um, I brought an apple. This is off my apple tree, one of my apple trees. And uh, it's not totally ripe yet, but they taste pretty good. Had a bite of one. Brian ate one this morning, and they're pretty good. They're getting pretty close. And you know what? I did nothing, nothing to produce this apple. You know, fruits are some of my favorite munchies, you know, um, apples, oranges, bananas, kiwi. I, I pretty much like all fruits. I mean, I like 
my favorite candies are the fruit-flavored candies. You know, I'm a jelly bean addict, and my favorite jelly beans are the ones that are kind of the fruit-flavored ones. I mean, they're just the best. So this fruit metaphor gets to me. I, I, I understand it. And when Paul spoke this into an agricultural community, the people understood what he was talking about. In fact, I think it's like a hundred and... Um, 16 times that he uses the, the word love, uh, or that love shows up in the New Testament, and I think there's 42 different references to the Christian life kind of being like a tree bearing fruit. People, this is m the language that, that they used. And I'm really tempted to eat this right now, but um, that might not come across very well in the sound system, so I'll, I'll spare you that. But um, the fruit is the, is, the pro is the product of a very long organic process. I, I had nothing to do with making that apple. Now, I, I trim the tree a little bit. Um, I make sure the bugs stay off of it when, when it looks like it may need some care there. Um, I, I mean, I haven't even fertilized this tree. You know, once in a while, if like last summer, we had to put a hose on it for a while, but I mean, I do very little in it. I have some part, but God does the growing, right? I mean, it starts at a seed. You know, people who, people who are in the fruit industry, they have a part in it. They cultivate the land, they plant the seed, but they don't germinate the seed. That happens on its own. They tend the soil, the plant comes up, they, they take care of the plant. They do a little bit of pruning, and, and they know just the professionals. They just know right how to snip the plants. I, I, I usually kill a plant if I try and prune it. But they're professionals at this, and, and they do these things, and, and they fertilize their trees, and they keep the bugs off them, and they protect these trees. And, and then what do they do? They, they kind of sit back and wait for the harvest. They don't make the fruit. The fruit just grows off of healthy trees. Spiritual fruit in our lives is the result of a long organic process where we have some responsibility, but God is the one who does that work in our life through his Holy Spirit. Spiritual fruit will show up in our life when we are healthy plants. And, and Scripture tells us that we need to stay connected to the vine. So some of this imagery here. And, and Jesus is, is our vine, and, and we're the branches that they come off. And we're, when we're attached to that vine that goes right back to its source, then we're able to grow healthy plants. And, and God is the gardener, and, and He... He snips away at us once in a while. Hey, you know that behavior? Probably going to have to cut that one off. And so he'll prune us back. And even times when we, we exhibit a little bit of fruit, sometimes he, he prunes those fruit branches back a little bit. Why? So we can grow even more fruit. So Paul is tapping into this metaphor of the Christian walk as this long organic growth process by which we end up bearing healthy fruit. If you look closely at Galatians 5 with me, verses 22 and 23, um, most translations 
separate these words with commas. So, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, comma, joy, comma, peace, comma, patience, you know, et cetera, all the, all the way down the list. Um, but there's no punctuation in the original Greek. And um, so what you're reading in, in your text is, it's an interpretation. The, the punctuation is it's kind of a, it's an educated guess. And um, I, I want to give you my educated guess as to maybe how this passage should be punctuated. Now, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. Um, I think that it should go like this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, colon, joy, comma, peace, comma, patience, comma, kindness, comma, goodness, comma, faithfulness, comma, gentleness, comma, and self-control. There's no law against things like these, period. And I think that there should be a colon after love because I think the fruit of the Spirit is simply love. And I think that Paul is trying to tell us that um, love is one fruit with many flavors. In this case, there are eight other flavors that Paul injects. But I don't think that the fruit, uh, the, the characteristics of love are, are limited to what Paul puts in, in this list. Because, you know, we could certainly add humility and, and forgiveness and things like that that are also ways that love can be described. So I think the fruit of the Spirit is love, and it's defined in many ways, because, I mean, God says He is love. And so as we grow in grace and we become more like His Son, Jesus, then we are, gonna, we are going to be more filled with love for God, and, and that's going to spill out into love for other people. If you back up just a few verses in uh, Galatians 5, uh, verses 13 and 14, it says, "'You were called to freedom.'" Brothers and sisters, only don't let this freedom be an opportunity to indulge your selfish impulses, listen to this, but serve each other through love. Verse 14, all the law has been fulfilled in a single statement, love your neighbor as yourself. Fruit of the Spirit is love. I mean, Jesus kind of taught, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So as the Holy Spirit does this sanctifying work in our lives, we're going to reap this love which can be described and it can be shown in many different ways. So love is joy. Love is patience. Love is kindness. Love is gentleness. You can go through that list and, and you could describe love in each and every one of those ways. And when you think about it like this, um, it takes you away from thinking that might go like this, that, well, there's so many different fruits of the Spirit, I can kind of treat it like a buffet. So I'm going to go through the buffet line and, you know, let me slap some of that kindness on my plate. Yeah, I want some more of that. Oh, joy, yes. Give me, give me some more joy. Oh, let's go light on the patience. And uh, I don't want any of that self-control. I mean, it's not a buffet. It's not a, it's not a list that you can pick and choose. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And when you figure out and when, when, the, when the grace of God 
invades your life and you start to become more like him and if he is loved, then you start to become more loving, then all of these other things come along with it. Maybe, maybe think about it in terms of, I was trying to think of what would be a, something that we understand now that they might not have understood back in the day um, when this was written. And maybe vitamins. Come, that's what came to mind is our body needs a bunch of vitamins to function in a healthy and proper way. And once in a while, you might have a vitamin deficiency. Maybe you don't like your broccoli and you don't want to eat your vegetables, and so maybe you need to eat your vegetables so that you can get the right infusion of, of vitamins, or, or maybe you just are at a point where your, your body's using them and you, and you need to take a supplement. So once in a while, we might notice that, wow, I, I feel like I'm growing in the love of God, but I just i am not feeling a lot of joy right now. Or, or my patience is, is really wearing thin, and so there might be times where we have to go into some intense prayer sessions and just ask God, you're like, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can, can you help me out? And I think he will. Jesus says that trees are known by their fruit. As Christians, we should be known by our fruit, which is love, and it's going to look like all of these different things. And I'm going to tell you that when we start bearing this fruit, it changes everything in your life. It does. It really does. I mean, imagine this. Those of you who are married, those of you who um, have kids, those of you who go to work and have coworkers, those of you who live in a neighborhood and have neighbors, those of you who have parents, those of you who have kids, those of you who are sitting next to somebody right now, did I get everybody? Okay. So imagine your relationships and what would be different if people exhibited more love, defined by joy, defined by peace. What would politics look like in our country if we all tried to be peaceful and kind and gentle and patient and faithful and full of self-control? Would it be different? Yeah. What about your marriage? Do you think your marriage might just get a little stronger, that, that two people might grow just a little closer together if you had more joy? If you exhibited that self-control? If you were more forgiving? If you were more humble? I, I think that all of the relationships in our lives would improve. So when we start showing the fruit of the Spirit, it changes everything. The kind of love that Paul is talking about here, it's not like the world's definition of love. I mean, love in the world is this um, mushy feeling. It's an emotional kind of love and often becomes, you know, it's just kind of trivial. We say we love everything. Um, sometimes love in the world is conditional, like, well, if you do this, then I'll, you know, and so it's kind of transactional. Then there's the sentimental kind of love and you hear the sappy songs and movies and and then, and then just love has kind of gotten to be disposable in our world. You know, I'm going to love you for as long as I feel like it. And then when my feelings change, then I'm just going to fall out of love, and, and that's okay. And so the world defines love a little bit differently than the Bible does. And, and Paul's using the word uh, agape love here. And, and 
It shows up a bunch of times, 116 in the New Testament. I think I said that. And it's, it's uh, agape love, is this, it's an abstract noun. It's a, it represents an activity or a disposition. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't represent a feeling or an emotion. Now, agape love can be emotional. It can stir up feelings in us, but that's not what motivates us to do things. Agape love acts. And so you could say that, um, well, I think the Apostle John, he gives us a really good definition of love. 1 John 4.10 says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You could say that agape love is choosing to act in the best interest of somebody else, whether they deserve it or not, even if it costs you something. That's what agape love is. You know, the, the best way to illustrate a point is to, to, to find a story. I found a really good one that I just want to take a couple minutes and, and read it to you. This is, this is from a book. Um, it, it, the book is called Excerpt. excerpt um, it's an excerpt from the letters to an unborn child. And, and the author is David Ireland. And when he wrote this, he was, he was writing to his child who was not yet born um, and he was suffering this crippling, debilitating neurological disease that was killing him. And so he wasn't sure that he would even get to meet his child. And so this is what he wrote. Um, if you want to get out of Kleenex, go ahead. Um, your mother is very special. Few men know what it's like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out to dinner when it entails what it does for us. It means that she has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house and down the steps, open the garage and put me in the car, take the pedals off the chair, stand me up, sit me in the seat of the car, twist me around so that I'm comfortable, fold the wheelchair, put it in the car, go around to the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, get out of the car, pull the garage door down, get back into the car and drive off to the restaurant. And then it starts all over again. She gets out of the car, unfolds the wheelchair, opens the door, spins me around, stands me up, seats me in the wheelchair, pushes the pedals out, closes and locks the car, wheels me into the restaurant, then takes the pedals off the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable. We sit down to have dinner, and she feeds me throughout the entire meal. When it's over, she pays the bill, pushes the wheelchair out to the car again, and reverses the same routine. And when it's over finished, with real warmth, she'll say, honey, thank you for taking me out to dinner. And he says, you know, I never quite know what to say. That's kind of the picture that Paul is getting that with agape love. It's a love that acts in the best interest of somebody else, even if it costs us personally. And Paul's written about love in other places, the famous love chapter. He, he, he writes um, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, it's not jealous, it doesn't brag, it isn't arrogant, it isn't rude, it doesn't seek its own advantage, it isn't irritable, it doesn't keep a record of complaints, it isn't happy with injustice, but it is 
happy with the truth. Love puts up with all things, trusts in all things, hopes for all things, endures all things. Love never fails. I read something, uh, I want to read you something that I, that I kind of penciled out this week. Uh, and this idea isn't totally original with me. I don't remember where I heard this, but I heard a version, something like this. Um, and I titled this, uh, this is kind of a turning what Paul just said in those verses into statements that we might speak to our spouses, our kids, our parents. Um, I just called it because I love you. I am patient with you because I love you and I want to forgive you. I am kind to you because I've had two cups of coffee today. I mean, that's not what it says in the Bible. <laughs> I'm kind to you because I love you and I want to help you. I, I do not envy your things or your gifts because I love you and I want you to have the best. I don't brag about my achievements because I love you and I want to hear about yours. I'm not arrogant or prideful because I love you and I want to build you up. I'm not rude because I love you and I care about your feelings. I'm not self-seeking because I love you and want to meet your needs before my own. I'm not easily angered because I love you and I want to overlook your offenses. I don't keep a record of wrongs because I love you. And as the Apostle Peter wrote, and he said, love covers over a multitude of sins. Well, what if we took that approach to our relationships? Do you suppose, do you suppose they might get stronger? I do. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. We're going to sing a song and We'll pray here in a minute, but there's a few things that, that you can do. You know, we always like to, to do something. You know, God grows the fruit in our life. The Holy Spirit does his work in us. And in the Christian faith, uh, it's called the process of sanctification. We, we become more like Jesus. And the, the older we get, the longer we travel with the Lord, the more we're supposed to look like this kind of love, the more that we're supposed to bear this kind of fruit. And God does that growing, but there's stuff that we need to do along the way. Because I, I didn't grow that apple, but I, I'll take a small part in caring for that tree, pruning it once in a while so that it would bear even more fruit, which is the work that God does in our life. But I, but I think if there's something that you want to try hard at, don't, don't try hard to be joyful or to be kind or to be patient. Let God do that work in you and try hard at these things. Try hard to stay connected to the vine. Pray. Pray for holiness. Pray for humility. Pray for love to burst forth in your life. Ask the Holy Spirit to do that work in you. Open up your Bible. Maybe it's memorize 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 that I just read. Maybe it's starting to, to get God's Word deep inside your soul. Not just read it, but meditate on it. Pray over Scripture. Memorize it. And the other thing that you can try hard to do is to obey. 
obey what the Holy Spirit prompts you to do. Sometimes the Holy Spirit asks us to step out and care for a neighbor. Sometimes it's the Holy Spirit asks us to, you know, you need to go reconcile that relationship. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will check us and convict us and say, you know what? You ought not do that. Probably need to prune that branch. And so when the Holy Spirit talks to you about those things, obey. So read, meditate, turn scripture, pray, and obey. That's the work that you can do. And lo and behold, you'll run into circumstances in life where you might typically respond in anger and hostility but you may surprise yourself when kindness or gentleness just pops out and when that happens say thank you lord thank you for doing your work in me and growing this fruit people of god said amen